This is Better Red Than Dead. It's a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about In Cold Blood, which is Truman Capote's 1965 and 1966 narrativization of the 1959 murder of the Clutter family in their home in Kansas. So guys, why In Cold Blood? So before I decided to sell out for the the very lucrative world of being a contention academic, um, <laughs> I was a reporter, and and I will add a print newspaper reporter because uh, I've always been you know really good at being at the cutting edge of any uh, well but, uh, economic trends and and also cultural trends. But extra, yeah, extra, <laughs> extra, yeah. extra. Yeah, I even I, I I even got a an MS in print journalism because I am a total dumbass. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, but I mean, I think because of that, I've been interested in, in Capote for a long time, both for the narrative techniques he develops within journalism, whether that is what we want to think of in Cold Blood as or, or not, I think is, is you know, is, is a good question. And, but also like the ethical, moral and interpretive questions, the new journalism raises, that is the kind of movement that Capote is a part of, along with people like what, like Joan Didion, Hunter Thompson, Tom Wolfe. And, and I think is the new journalism, I think that is Tom Wolfe's term. It is. Dwight McDonald called it para-journalism, which did not stick. Right. Okay. And, and so it and so it's like basically uh, applying the techniques of fiction to telling a nonfiction story, like reportage. Yeah. Yeah. And and so like In Cold Blood, it, it is an amazing book. Um, I'm very happy it exists. And yet to produce it, Capote did a lot of shit that I think feels pretty icky. You know, there's this moment in, 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 in Cold Blood where he describes how the Clutter's family's faces in their coffins are, are covered in cotton. How the fuck does he know that? Well, he either made it up or he looked, uh, both of which are ki- kind of shitty. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's it's an interesting detail. Is that really something that we as readers need to know, though? And he's also really manipulative with his sources. Uh, oh, yeah. he, he befriends, and I'm definitely putting that in scare quotes, Perry Smith, um, in this sort of fraught relationship that goes on for years. He does help Smith and and Hickok. You know, he gets them top flight legal representation. But he also exploits that. And I, I think it's kind of been suggested that part of why he did help them in that way is because he he needed their narrative to continue to make for a better story what? yeah so anyway um and he exploits uh, you know the investigator dewey too and and family members and friends it's not quite gonzo the uh, genre of journalism where like the reporter is there in a, in a first person kind of way you know because he does maintain the the remove of you know he'll say things like told a reporter in the text when he's talking about himself but it's close and i do think that capote is is really a key part of the story and and i don't really know what that is i don't know how i feel about that relatedly i am very interested in the idea of this is a nonfiction novel like what the fuck does that mean and how does that label or does that label help us think about in cold blood alongside other nonfiction yeah um, Tristan, I, I just want to relate to you for a second because of your, you know, you got your MS in print journalism. <laughs> I actually have a PhD in old rotary phones. <laughs> so, That's good. I, I mean, if you're going to do print journalism, you do need one of those big black rotary phones on your desk, right? Totally. Yeah. Get the scoop. Get the fucking scoop, man. And also, just not not too much how, how the sausage gets made, but I was super excited for 1984 that I could splice in the sound of a teletype machine. So, yeah. oh, <laughs> of course. Okay, so this was like it's weird to admit that this is almost a pure aesthetic pick for me. In that, like, I really do love how it's written. It's sort of Midwest Gothic, which is really interesting and weird. I think you can see clearly the degree to which Capote is 
not a Midwesterner. Like he really looks at this sort of from a distance for me. It's true crime, which is one of my very favorite genres and a really 20th century genre. Uh, although it's like, it has a much longer history than that. And I think that should be noted because Katie's boyfriend, Charles Brockton Brown, <laughs> wrote a book called Wheeland that really presages, like puts puts out this genre way before in Cold Blood. Like Tristan, I'm interested in the fact that it's both a novel and not, how that might affect our reading. And part of that for me is about my own personal interest in magazine culture, which really, this book is very much embedded in the magazine culture of the mid-1950s, which is, or 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, which is really important to think about. Uh, It affects a lot of books that we think of as being located in in book form, but that were actually begun in magazine form. Another famous example is Hannah Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem. And so that's interesting for me is the way that magazines and very, very popular forms affect that we read. Uh, Before I get into In Cold Blood, I just want to say, um, hello, Charles Brockton Brown, my sweetie, my honey pie, um, my early American uh, author of creepy books. Um, I love you, baby. And I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with you. Uh, But you died like 100 years ago. So it's gonna be tough. I think like 200 Um, years ago now. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah, Yeah. It's 100 years ago. That's that's impressive. Yeah. It is true crime. No, I mean, that's how I read it. True-ish. I mean, it's this weird-ass book about this – so, like, it's been, while, it's been a while since I read this sucker. Um, it's, like, a crazy – it's either the dad or the son uh, is, like, a family annihilator mm-hmm. and or, like, in the making. There is a supernatural aspect to it, too. So, it's there's some kind of haunted noise. It's been a while. Um, yeah, but he's, a, he's also a mass killer. Yes. True. Mm-hmm. I find old true crime preferable – to new true crime. But the thing that I find most preferable is no crime. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like crime. I think it's bad. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say it's bad. uh, But you mean of the murdering kind. You don't mean of the like criminalizing people for the sake of putting them in for profit prisons. No. No, actually, yes. Uh, I need my Hello Fresh, and so the more prisoners there are, the better. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, no. Obviously, the crime that I mean is like the the murdering, the bad kind. The bad I think kind. we can all agree with the bad right. kind. There, yeah, right. that's fine. Right. And murdering fa- murdering a family is the bad kind. Yes. Uh, right. We can all say it because um, property is is theft. There is no crime greater than capital. Right. Just to. <laughs> That's what I meant to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure thing. I will say though that I'm scared of crime, of being murdered. I don't want to be murdered. Let it be known. That, that, I, cool. you can quote that me on is that. Fa- that is fair. Yeah, that's that a fair statement. So that's why I did, I did not want to read this book. So why in cold blood? Yes, why? Why? <laughs> God, why? I did not want to read it. It was scary, and I didn't like it. I am so scared of crime. 
that I bought a police grade pepper spray fogger for myself. And Megan, you remember, you may remember this story. Um, it was one of my madcap wacky uh, <laughs> misadventures where <laughs> I, do, I do remember the story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so late one night, uh, I heard a little creaky noise. So I, so I walk out with my big, huge mask I had gotten for the police grade pepper spray fogger. And uh, I heard something creaking and I investigated. Turns out it was nothing. But I thought, well, why don't I just test this thing anyway to just like see what happens? <laughs> you know? like, yeah, test it indoors. Totally. Yeah. I pulled the pin out. I may as well just like let this thing rip. So I, so I sprayed the tiniest little spray and it was life changing. A huge noxious cloud of gas comes out of it. And, and I'm dying. I'm coughing so hard that I think I'm going to fucking throw up. And so I like run to the window, stick my head out of it. I'm like sobbing, trying not to vomit, coughing, coughing, coughing. I finally recovering it back into the kitchen. And there's like dye in it that marks, uh, that's supposed to mark the person who is trying to crime you. But but it what it marked was like my entire kitchen wall with like this big orange ozone stain. Um, so I did not get my security deposit back on that. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was it was bad, folks. Yeah. Today we're going to talk about the troubled ethics of this work. We're going to talk about how Capote works in characterization, and we're going to talk at length about Kansas and how much we feel ambivalent about the lengthy descriptions thereof. (laughs) Okay, so as context for this, uh, Capote wrote this originally as a four-part serial for The New Yorker that was published in 1965 after... The whole case had been resolved, meaning they were put to death after many years of appeal. I know that talking about that sort of serialization just seems like a fact, but for me, it's really important in talking to talk about the New Yorker magazine. Uh, it started in 1925 under the editorship of Harold Ross, but Capote's writing for the mid-century version, which is under William Shawn. At that time, it published a mix of cultural commentary, journalism, and literature that it does now. I like to point out because I find the magazine pompous, masturbatory, and self-involved. Or <laughs> I don't know how to, I don't know how to describe yeah. what I hate so much about it because so much so much of its journalism is actually really good. Yeah, but it's just uh, pretentious. Uh, okay, I also like to point out because I find it really like amazing is that the New Yorker was literally the publication for which Dwight McDonald invented the term middlebrow when he wrote about it in the 1940s. Capote published these four pieces in the New Yorker in 1965. And then the full text was published in 1966 and everyone read it. Like everyone and their mom read this book. It was a huge bestseller, but almost immediately people were super mad at it because there are clear, Tristan, you mentioned this already. There are clear ethical concerns with this and certainly stuff that we just know is made up. Like, And I think we can tell that from just reading the book. So maybe Truman Capote should not have said that it was immaculately factual, which is his, <laughs> his term. Um, he was prone to exaggeration, so not too surprising. That said, he did an enormous amount of research. We know that he had about 8,000 pages of notes. Uh, he did have close relationships with a number of the characters including the killers, particularly Perry Smith. 
But even this question, meaning like how true is this book, helps us to see why this book is so significant in the histories for me of true crime and new journalism, which I think are very 20th century literary technologies. And that's part of why I wanted to talk about it too. Yeah. And and I will say just that for me, the more important kind of ethical questions do have to do with um, the degree to which we think it is exploitative of various characters and oh, yeah. not and not so much with this question of like the factual, which I because I, I do think that, you know, modern like, there's there's like a really kind of dumb discourse in modern journalism that puts such a privilege on like, oh, objective, like just right. the facts as though such a thing exists. And it's like, OK, well, that kind of journalism is the same journalism that lets The New York Times just be stenographer refers to the Bush administration and publish, you know, and and so like, I don't like that, like what he made up, what he didn't make up. It's like, I I mean, it is interesting, but it's not, to me, it's not as serious of an ethical concern as, you know, what, how is he deploying like, you know, like, oh, I'm friends with these people or, or like gaining trust and like what he's doing with that. Um, That to me is the kind of more sort of interesting, like kind of ethical question around this. Oh, I totally agree. At the moment that it was published, though, like that was one of the things that people got super mad about. Mm-hmm. And I think his claim that this is immaculately factual was sort of part of his problem because reading the book, I think your expectation is different because it feels like a novel. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And so I feel prepared when I read this to go, okay, like some of this dialogue is made up because how could it possibly be mimetic? Yeah. No, totally. I mean, I think part of it, too, is that Capote is in this book, but he doesn't signpost it. Right. You have to kind of read between the like, like he'll say, like, Mm -hmm. told a reporter and you're like, oh, he's talking about himself or like you'll read a scene and be like, wait, how would anyone know this unless they were actually there, you know? Right. Um, which is yeah, which is why whether it's Gonzo or not, you know, the the first the first person um the uh, reporter very there um it is the the presence of the reporter is just a lot bigger in things that we mark as the new journalism than you your standard like newspaper writing right and the newspaper writing the funny thing is that like you read any newspaper accounts of true crime in the 50s and they're heavily sensational yeah oh sure sure so it's not as though they there's even a pretense to neutrality right right there's just like here's ex- like very gruesome photography and really purple prose. So it's just, it's funny that like, this is looked at as like a problem that it's not neutral, but newspaper accounts are like, no, well, it's not a problem that it's like <laughs> splashed right. in gore. Right. Yeah. And I mean, well, also like newspaper, uh, even today, like uh, the, 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 the fallacy of objectivity fails in that uh, newspaper uh, until very, very recently, like uh, almost every like mainstream newspaper in the country just like completely uncritically accepts like the police line on anything. Yeah, you know, that's absolutely, absolutely anything, which I mean, and that's crime. I mean, the sensationalism of crime reporting. Yeah. Do they plunge into those police reports in lurid detail, you know, just like glowing praise for the cops and the, yeah. And most so, crime reports are, are not very interesting or even if they're about murders, they're about what is like most murders, which is somebody kills their partner. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. The, even like this book. So like, the, there's a difference between a there's a section of uh, in cold blood where they talk about the other murders that have happened in like around this area in Kansas yeah and it's like there's there's a weird one there's one where a guy like flushed a guy's head down a toilet until he died and then right. buried him and unburied him and buried him and unburied him mm-hmm, yeah but it wasn't yeah. like he got caught in two seconds because he wouldn't stop like burying and unburying the guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> so it's like the thing that's the thing that's uh, compelling is the mystery aspect. I think the other thing too is that like so probably why people were slightly more pissed at Capote is that there's a difference between a story about a murder in a newspaper that I'm probably going to like wrap fish up in in a couple days mm-hmm. and like a fancy this is like very self-consciously literary yeah and so i think that's it if you're meant to be titillated you can't be pissed that you're titillated yeah yeah no, no one no one's mad at the new york daily news when they splash like porno sex addict rocks new york <laughs> right <laughs> that's, a, that's a yeah um but they are uh but when the new yorker does that then it's it's a little it's different yeah i mean and i think this is like a weird aside, so I'm not sure if it's as relevant as I feel like it is. We'll talk about its presentation of Kansas a little bit later, but New Yorker readers are weirdly obsessed with the Midwest and with parts of the country with which they're unfamiliar, meaning like any place but New York and San Francisco. So when Shirley Jackson published The Lottery, which is 47, and the readers of New Yorker lost their goddamn minds, and a startling number of them are like, I read that this happens in the Midwest. <laughs> no, there was a, when we, I read the lottery in high school and there was a girl who was like, it's based on a true story for sure. Yeah. People, <laughs> people very much thought this and they all thought it happened in like some, some weird part of the country that they'd never been to. Right. They're like the rural do this thing. And it's like, what the fuck are you thinking? Also just like, that So that presentation of Kansas where sort of like there's a particular kind of conflict between a version of U.S. Western lawlessness and U.S. Western uh, rugged cops is part mm-hmm. of the story of this. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's also like another thing going on, which is like, okay, so there's that kind of like Western thing, right? But there's also this other – and it's like very like – the book describes it in, as conventional a lot. But there's this other thing going on too, which is like the suspicion that in the Midwest, when you're not doing the lottery, it's just because like you're busy doing the wicker man. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or you're doing this this like – it confirms the thing that I think people say a lot about – crimes of this magnitude which is like oh these people aren't from here right and this but everybody yeah really confirms it yeah definitely but everyone is like uh, they're totally fucking from here the whole <laughs> even when they catch them the there's like a bitchy post office lady who is the best character right. oh for sure yeah 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 and she's like they catch the guys and she's still like yeah i know it was one of you fucks like yeah. Like, I, I know it was one of you assholes in this diner with me. Like, I know you all fucking may as well have done it if you didn't do it. And probably you were involved. Th- that gets built up the whole book, even though you know that it was these two dudes who are not from there. Right. That, I mean, like, I think it's for the reader that we know that it's not from there and not for the townspeople. I see. Okay. You yeah, know, totally. Yes. And that that's that's the sort of, like, people passing through. I think that just confirms something for the reader of The New Yorker that's like, oh, you know, it doesn't really make it. It's it makes it both like obscene and comforting because it's still like the the thing about true crime that I think is really important is that it's always about crimes that are like exceptionally rare. Right. Right. Yeah. Like strangers really it's extraordinarily rare that somebody will go into the house of a stranger and kill a bunch of people. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But that but that 
but that is like almost always i mean like what you're saying that's almost always like the crime that get a a typical i mean i hate to use that word but story about domestic violence is like a one or two paragraph thing in a police blotter but if it's a stranger home invasion then that's like front page news for weeks if you watch true crime you think basically everyone is killed by a serial killer yeah sure sure Okay, so the book is written as three intertwined points of view. The members of the town of Holcomb and Garden City, the killers Dick Hickok and Perry Smith, and the police. And first in the book, we have some scene setting. We learn about the Clutter family who lives in the quiet Kansas town, too quiet, of Holcomb. (laughs) And the two killers, Dick Hickok and Perry Smith. This is followed by the event of the murder itself, which for it's one of the weirdest narrated moments of the book by far. It's most thoroughly described by bystanders, and there's a local teacher, Larry Hendricks. For me, that's the most memorable description because he's very much a sort of third party. Uh, he's he has less dis- less relationship with these characters, but it's just worth noting that like a ton of people come in and out of this house. Right after the murder, just like walking in and out. So there's a lot of witnesses to the sort of post facto in weird ways. So after the murder, the book continues in this this style of interwoven point of view. Perry and Dick travel first to Mexico and then they make their way around the country. They're in Florida for a while. Um, They later return to Kansas in what is truly (laughs) like the dumbest possible move. (laughs) Um, It's really not clear to me why they do that. Although they give this sort of series of wobbly explanations. Um, Throughout their time on the run, we, the readers, learn much more about their early lives, their families, and their criminal histories. Um, While this part of the story unfolds, we witness the Midwestern town that clearly considers itself terrorized by these events. And it is. I mean, I don't want to be too, I don't want to minimize that too much. But this is where uh, Katie's favorite postmistress comes in a lot. And the woman who runs the diner is also a big uh, character here. And so we also learn more about the clutters, the family, who don't even have any interesting skeletons in their closets. Uh, so we actually learn less about them than we might have, because I think Capote doesn't consider them very like interesting. We take up the perspective of A.A. A. Dewey, who is the Kansas Bureau of Investigations investigator who will later crack this case. Uh, he's a very 1950s-y detective, and he has this very sort of conventional family. He's a very straight-backed sort. The killers are eventually caught because a former cellmate of Dick Hickox calls the investigators and reveals that long before the crime, he had told Dick about her clutter and his having money. And the last part of the book shows the trial and then later execution of the two killers who are hanged and following up on our um, facts about hanging, die by suffocation, which I think is the most painful hanging method. Um, yeah, the end. Yeah. Uplifting. It's a, it's a yeah, very, yes, very, very cheery book. <laughs> it's also like, a, it's a, there's lots of description of the rolling planes. Yeah. Yeah. He's very upsetting. Now is the time that it's the roast of Megan Tussler because, <laughs> because, because holy fucking shit. So you like 
maybe fairly, maybe unfairly, had a lot to say about Robinson Crusoe and his mm-hmm. like counting yeah. things yeah. and mm-hmm. his satchels of gunpowder. Boring. And it's so boring. It's so boring. And then I'm reading this and 50 pages in, I'm like, Oh, uh, now I know what the best time to harvest wheat is. I know whose <laughs> trousers are the narrowest. I know about pie contests. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know about the world's largest free swimming pool. I like <laughs> give me the satchels of gunpowder. I like, come on. Thank you, Katie. I am much more interested too in like how many hundred weight of lead Robinson Crusoe was able to stuff into his his goatskin hat. Yeah. But you don't <laughs> you don't know here what could be sinister. That's <laughs> That's the point is that this is all potentially just like completely sinister. You know, this is characterization, man. This is like, and at least we have more than one character and we're not just, we're not just working in the mode of characterizing this one, this one fucking ding dong who is like, let me get all my nails in a pile. At least he's likable. He's likable. He's a big, big mustache. He's a big mustache. Well, uh, right. He's got a big mustache and he wears sweaty goat skin. So, I mean, what's not to like, right? (laughs) Yeah. What do you consider likable? (laughs) I mean, uh, well, I'm not sure any of these characters are likable, but that is like appealing to me too, actually. You don't don't like that it's murdery and I do. I think think everyone who studies 20th century literature is a sicko. Everything (laughs) is depressing. It's awful. It's horrible. I hate it all. But you have to read books that don't have any fucking in them. There is fu- there's there, fucking. There, I mean, there is there's fucking. Like, what 18th century book doesn't have fucking in it? Do you <laughs> like, know how horny Tristram Shandy is? I'm not talking to Tristan right now. <laughs> uh, I know what 18th century British literature has in it. I'm talking about you reading fucking sermons all day. You, well, that, it's a different it's a different that, kind of ecstasy that maybe, maybe <laughs> more elevated among us know about here. Not all uh, fucking and such uh, well <laughs> vulgar situations you're, that is that is just for the for that's boring i don't get it um should should we should we read like that the the opening to the book um just because i think it, yeah it's really famous and i also think that it does like it does a lot of that kind of like what the fuck is actually what are the claims emerging about this this space let's talk about that setting i think it's super important katie i know you want to talk about kansas mm-hmm um, um, what's the matter with Kansas as that book yeah. is called? Yeah. Um, it is like the craziest fucking state. Uh, it, 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 with a very fucked up history, certainly. Um, it's also where, um, a bunch of where, uh, little house on the prairie takes place. And, Oh, okay. In, in, which is the, which is a big favorite of, um, libertarians. I learned kind of recently. Yeah. And, uh, in which they're also terrorized by Osages. And so for obvious reasons, I I love that book. But for the opposite reason that other people might like mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. You like it for the libertarian reason. <laughs> I like it for the opposite of the libertarian reason, which is I wish those Indians had killed those motherfuckers. All I'm hearing is Megan is a libertarian. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> well, oh. Rose, Rose Wilder Lane, who is Laura Ingalls Wilder's daughter, with Anne Rand, is one of the founders of objectivism in the United States. Oh, God. Yeah. No, I'm not kidding around. This is like a, yeah. this is an easily researched fact. 
No, I believe you. And honestly, like remembering Little House of the Prairie from my childhood, it's like, oh yeah, I can see how this is like some budding libertarian shit happening here. Oh but, yeah. Um, oh yeah. But but yeah, I'll I'll, I'll read that that the opening just because yeah, yeah, let's I talk think, about Capote's okay. Kansas for now. Yeah. Okay, so um, the village of Holcomb stands on the high wheat plains of western Kansas, a lonesome area that other Kansans call out there. Some 70 miles east of the Colorado border, the countryside, with its hard blue skies and desert clear air, has an atmosphere that is rather more far west than middle west. The local accent is barbed with a prairie twang, a ranch hand nasalness, and the men, many of them, wear narrow frontier trousers, stetsons, and high-heeled boots with pointed toes. The land is flat, and the views are awesomely extensive. Horses, herds of cattle, a white cluster of grain elevators rising as gracefully as Greek temples are visible long before a traveler reaches them. Um, which, that to me, that last scene, very uh, reminiscent kind of of some, like, Willa Cat. Like, I'm, I'm thinking at that moment. Oh, yeah, it's very uh, My, My Antonia, where there's, like, a plow that's, like, projected by the sun, like, for many miles away. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, but, like, so, I mean, like, super, st- in, 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 like, the frontieriness of, of the space, um but that like and, and and then and like a little bit like you know if you if you read on a bit it's like oh it's kind of run down except then we find out like these are all like pretty prosperous farmer like mm-hmm. you know herb clutter himself is uh you know very wealthy he was like an eisenhower pointing to some kind of agricultural commission so it's like it, it's not quite I, like I, the, like the plains today um there's been a lot of press on like oh how they've they've like emptied out of like of you know like of, of white people who had settled them in the you know not so had colonized them in the in the late um 19th century but like that's not really where we are at this point it's frontiery but it's also like deeply ingrained in the kind of like economic structures and it's like you know what i mean so i, I like where exactly how we even picture like where this is i think is um interesting you know? And I do think we have to sort of note that for me, for like, this is for a New Yorker reader. So we always have to have it in our mind that that's, this is not for a Kansas reader. Right. Is right. that why I'm so deeply fucking bored? Like, I, I, I could, <laughs> like, you could have read more, but I would not be able to stay awake. I can't, I can't take it. I can't take it. Yeah. It's so boring. Holy <laughs> oh, shit! <laughs> <sighs> Wrong. I've, I tr- I've never been so Wrong. bored in my goddamn life. I- I'll die. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's it's a uh, it's 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 a setting. If there's any more setting, you're gonna have to do the like fucking you know like uh fuck what's that movie where they have to wake the guy up with it shooting him in the heart? <laughs> uh, p- Pulp Wait. Fiction, like yeah, shooting with you're gonna a. Have to- Oh, yeah. the I'm adrenaline shot out. to the heart. Yeah. Yes, I'm going to pass out, and I'm due to boredom. I'm going to overdose on boredom, and it's going to be the end. Yeah. You you know a murder is coming as soon as you read about the planes. Yeah, I mean, I do. I find I I, I don't think I wasn't bored with it because I do find the whole concept of the planes like deeply terrifying. Just like the that like uh, in a way that like just the, the expansiveness and also just the wet like the extremes of weather. Like it's a uh, I, I don't know. There's something being surrounded by thousands of miles of land in every direction that I just see. Find, now like, you're reading like an Upper West Sider. You just got to remember, <laughs> you know, the most the biggest expanse of space we want to see is Central Park. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> right. You know, like there are parts of the Met that are too big for some of these people. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, but okay. So I mean, take like I mean, I yes, this is definitely written for like a New Yorker audience. Um, and so like the descriptions of like kind of Americana have that function. So what is that? I mean, so like one is that like the 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 idea of the frontier has always been like constitutive of this kind of like manifest destiny, like uh, bullshit, like uh, white American concept of itself. But it's like so, but it's so like that. I don't know. It's taking the, like the exterior, like the liminal, the liminality or something as like constitutive of the center, which I think is already like kind of weird, you know, like how, how could, how can this be like so deeply American when it's like out, like it's, it's outside of, um, you know, I, I think, but, uh, mm-hmm. so that that's interesting to me. So here's the other thing too, like, okay, so we have a bunch of different, so we have a couple things happening. One is like, okay, the descriptions of the land itself. And like, there's a lot going on with that. Like there's this like history of, colonial violence that we might think about there's mm-hmm. like economic stuff we might think about but there's also like the detail stuff i i passed out so i don't right. know you mentioned a tra- you mentioned a tractor at some point like the pants the clothes like stuff like that the for me the descriptions of kansas in the first two-thirds of the book are just soporific but then they do like have a payoff to me at the end which is after you have to hear them say how they did this horrible goddamn murder and it's like, okay, like after that, like, sure, give me some, give me some land, give me some cats, like, whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I need a chaser. Yeah. <laughs> For the, because it's so grim. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I don't, this is not a fully formed thought, but it is a sort of uniquely Kansas kind of murder in that it like has to happen in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that's part of the mystery of this is like, Nobody saw anything. Weirdly, because like, so the way it's set up is like, it's the middle of nowhere, but there's also like, there's a guy that lives in the house next door and like yeah, people are checking on them all the anything. time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like that. So that, the like the, the remoteness of it, I mean, it it is like, you know, it's, it's fairly sparsely populated. Sure. But like the remoteness of it is like kind of manufactured in a way right like because yeah mm-hmm, i mean like totally. that, that, like that na- i mean that neighbor who like didn't hear anything doesn't really live much further away from the clutters than would be true of like a lot of suburbia right yeah. like uh or, or even i mean you can be on like on a city street like by you know that, that where no one else is around like kind of like an alley or so so it's right so it's like yeah oh so like this is this is like the weird spookiness of like the planes that you're so out there by yourself but it's a social space. It's not really that, you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. When he does want to sort of like correct some things actually for, for his, for his New York audience in the sense that like, it is a bit of a correction to say like, there are rich people out here. Right. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it's not just like, um, you know, innocent or, yeah, I mean, it is kind of innocent, but it's not just like, poor farmers yeah and and i'm sure in in the in the 60s too i would think that a lot of capote's readers too the 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 main you know beside from like kind of frontier fantasies would be like dust bullshit from the 30s right that that would be the other kind of big cultural historical touchstone that uh, contemporary readers would have probably had in mind thinking about a place like this i mean i I think you know i'm not even sure but there's so much literature Mm -hmm. from the 30s of that stuff that people of this readership would have consumed right and uh, you know a lot of it is somebody like steinbeck who which of course is you know a little bit like orwell is deeply ironic to me because steinbeck is like a communist yeah well or did, but then didn't he go like unfortunately reactionary late in life he did i yeah. know but i'm holding, <laughs> i'm holding good i'm holding true to- totally fair 
Um, so, okay. So Katie hates Kansas. I know. I'll look at Kansas. <laughs> it's not Kansas. I, I have nothing against Kansas. It's the descriptions of Kansas. I, I'll look at it. I don't need to hear it described in such a manner or way. And that's, but that's not Kansas in particular. You would feel the same if this were New York. Yes. I don't want to hear about like, the sky looked wide today. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're skipping a lot of Willa Cather. <laughs> no, no, I was just like, yeah, it's just like, get, let me make a list of things that bore me. I mean, I find it soothing. I think, which is like not all that different from soporific, believe it or not. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think you're, I think soothing is, is we're getting, we're getting close to our ASMR YouTube channel. <laughs> okay. I need I need, we all need to speak just a little quieter. Like, you know, <laughs> but, should all work on our voice tone. <laughs> um no, but right, like a landscape painting, right? You don't I mean like if you have that hanging in your house, it's not something so you can really look at as like, damn, that is some cool fucking shit right there. It's like it's so it can be soft and kind of soothing and you know. Yeah, it's you not have Nelson. A landscape. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, fucking, if you have a landscaping in your house, you live in a doctor's office. What are you doing? <laughs> or, or, or a or hotel. My, or, my, or, yeah. like, or like my grandmother's house, right? Like, Yeah, like yeah. you're either uh, like major interest in grandma's house or you're at a Marriott. Yeah. No, even Marriott has cooler art. Marriott has cooler art. Yeah, yeah. You're at a, like the kind of vintage motel that I think is going to be great. And then I go in there and I'm like, people smoked in here for 80 years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So the, the landscape has a nice yellow cast to it, right? Like, yeah. It's, it's, it could use a cleaning if a cleaning, if it ever, like if the painting itself had cost more than $34. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but also like, okay, this is, I feel very strongly that we have to talk about our killers. Yeah. Because they are the most richly characterized for me mm-hmm. yes. um, no. and this is the thing Tristan that you talked about where like there's a lot this is like that's where a lot of the overlap comes in with its with its like ethical yes uh, we can say I, I would say problems but I would also say like questions yes um, and, 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 I, and I do think that like yeah, the uh, one, but I, I like I, I do think that this is 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 part of just sort of like uh, good good reporting. But I also think you know it has an important narrative function, like sort of hum- humanizing uh, the, the 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 killers. Uh, yeah. That that it's really into that, and I mean I think it does like it does so in very liberal terms, like rather than left. Oh, terms, I think I so think too, it, like, for sure. But but in, but in a kind of like particularly with Perry Smith, like sort of hits a lot of like sort of like li- liberal buttons, right? Like that, like, oh, that, okay. So he, he had an abusive family. Uh, you know, there's, uh, there, they, there's a psychiatrist report at one point that he has like, that he, uh, some, some sort of, some form of schizophrenia. Um, you know, there, there's, you know, he, uh, impoverished. Um, and I, I guess like what, like one question that I have trying to figure out what the claim is that the book is making about like how to interpret like Perry Smith is like, I, I mean, like, well, and I don't like, it's not the case that we have to resolve all of those. Uh, you know, I think it, you know, multiple like explanations can be true at the same time, but I just, I, I'm not really sure though, at the end of the book, how it does want us to read Perry Smith or, or if it does like think that it's come, it's a sort of explanation of the crime, like how this happened. So I'm kind of curious what you guys think about that. I mean, one thing I will say is that like, we don't, actually have a good reading of Perry Smith without the simultaneous reading of Dick Hickok. For me, someone who who 
we find more sympathetic has to be positioned against someone that we find more um, sociopath, sociopathic. Yes. Yeah, and, and I think – and just so like, yeah, I, I think it's, it's probably worth talking about just the, the differences in how the two are characterized. So yeah, like Dick Hickok, like the extent that we meet his family, they seem like nice kind of poor, you know, poor people. Um, it, it doesn't doesn't seem to be any indication that he had like an abusive past. Um, there is that like he had a car accident or something that like the family yeah. speculates he had some kind of brain damage. Head from, injury, but, yeah, yeah. But th- but that's it. And 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 we're told that he's a pedophile. Um, and yeah, like it is like kind of like kind of nakedly like sort of sociopathic is the sense that at least I get from Perry Smith. Um, okay, so he like he's racialized. Like his 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 uh, his, his mom is, is is Indian. His dad is uh, is is like a white texan uh white texan or something mm-hmm. like that um he's very poor back like they were they were rodeo performers uh you know very poor uh, background like alcoholism abuse have kind of traveled every you know we're just kind of dragged everywhere um and, and so like yeah so like hickok we don't have that like oh his early childhood was so fucked up i mean they, they were poor but like not like there's not like the kind of like abusive aspect layered onto it with perry smith it's like you no know, poor alcoholism like racialized uh, you know uh, 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 racism uh, abuse abusive um also mental illness like so all of that kind of comes yeah. together for um the but but yeah but you're right that megan that it's always like kind of as a point of comparison with hickok as we're getting those details right and they have to be to some degree about like how he has more of a conscience or uh um he's he has a yeah that there's some there's some distinction there but also like I have no the book is is weirdly like it kind of goes back and forth on who pulled the trigger but I'm pretty convinced that Perry Smith killed everybody. Yeah, I agree. And uh, yeah, I agree. And that throws a wrench. And Capote knows this in the way that he characterizes both of them. But, you know, I still think Hickok is much more cruel. Yes. Yeah. Well, the thing about it is, is like, so I think there's something about, so um, at the end of the book, there's a psychiatrist report that talks about if somebody has this whole cluster of things that makes you mentally ill, that it becomes like physics, why they react the way they do. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like setting off dynamite. And so basically it's like, I didn't have, because I think there's like a lot going on here. So I don't think there's like, it's easy to like parse everything out about what this is saying about the crime or, or what causes crime explanations uh, and things like that. But I do think that the book is leaning very hard on the nurture rather than nature angle. Yes. Um, Because even like they both have head injuries, but both of those head injuries. So like, Dick has this car accident that he only gets into because he doesn't go to college because he doesn't think it's like a safe enough bet. Right. So there's like everything is like social and nurture related and not like um brain chemistry shit, you know? Yeah. Totally. Yeah, that's right. I think that that's a really I mean, and I would suggest that that's a very sort of um, you know, second wave of psychoanalysis. Not psychoanalysis actually, but like post psychoanalytic, sociological and psychological analyses that are very much contemporary to this book so yeah no totally and actually katie uh, could, I, I might I, I might just read the those lines that you were talking about where we do have mm-hmm. that psychiatrist kind of account so th- i think this is on page 302 it's sort of like 
it's a sympathetic passage, but that I also think remains like kind of deeply chilling. And like, there's some aspect of like the violence that still remains beyond the kind of like Ken of, of, uh, or any kind of explanatory potential. Um, so, okay. Um, it is Dr. Satin's contention that only the first murder matters psychologically. And then when, when Smith attacked Mr. Clutter, he was under a mental eclipse deep inside a schizophrenic darkness for it was not entirely a flesh and blood man. He quote, suddenly discovered himself destroying, but a key figure in some past configuration his father the orphanage nuns who had derided and beaten him the hated army sergeant the parole officer who had ordered him to stay out of kansas one of them or all of them in his confession smith said i didn't want to harm the man i thought he was a very nice gentleman soft-spoken i thought so right up to the moment i cut his throat while talking to donald cullivan smith said they the clutters never hurt me like other people like people have all my life maybe it's just the clutters were the ones that had to pay for it I, yeah. Anyway, I, I don't. I, I'm not exactly sure what what I want to say about that passage, but I, I do think um, you had mentioned it, and I, I think that it. Um, I think there's a lot there, certainly. And I think you're. This is such an exemplar for what you're talking about, Katie. That it's really seen as right. So physics, but also not necessarily an inevitability mm-hmm. of this degree of mistreatment, but that it sets up the conditions yeah. for the capability. Yes. So I, it's so it's like there's a lot of things that have to uh, go off just right for this to happen. Like, so Perry has to want to impress Dick because he thinks that Dick is manly. So he has to make up the fact that he's already done a murder. And then Dick has to hear that and think he can slot him into this other plot he has going on. Yeah. And also, like, we have to go back because um, Perry's dad, like, has to... Uh, have prevented him from going to school, even though he probably, he maybe would have done well in school. And like, we also have to um, like go even, we have to go back to the uh, fact that he gets into a motorcycle accident. We have to go back to like all these different like contingencies and stuff that lead to the, to them being where they are. And then even, even then, like the thing that when Perry tells the story about the actual murder, Dick wants to rape the daughter he says that he wants to call it off at that point right mm-hmm. uh, uh may not have stopped the murder but he says like it wouldn't have happened sort of like the way it happened right um and the fact that dick is the one who wanted to go in without masks so they would have to kill everyone right right that the motivating factor here is robbery is just utterly mystifying to me <laughs> you know what i'm mm-hmm, saying yeah. like i'm sure that they do think that he has a safe yeah. But they know that they're going to have to kill everybody. Yeah. They, he's, they're very explicit, like no witnesses. And so that, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. That that's the part of, that's like uh, always there as part of the motivating it, factor. Yeah. It's, yes, it is. Well, and uh, but also too, like the, mo- like the, uh, the language of the motivating factor. I mean, I think like one, like one way that I do think that like they're, you know, for, for, um, you know, left analysis, this book is really interesting. Is the, is it skepticism about like individual agency or intent to explain much of anything, right? Like that, the passage that, what, that, that I just read where like some, you know, Smith, a really chilling line that he, you know, thought he's a very nice man right up to the moment that he cut his throat. It's all of these contingencies, as, as you were saying, Katie, that, that, that produce this moment, but none of which are like kind of legible on their own terms, none of which are like really sufficient to explain anything. And certainly what like the higher brain 
grain intention of the person. It, it just does not seem to matter at all at that moment, right? Um, and yeah, like so, why did they even go out there in the first place? Yeah, you're right. Like that, that the robbery is seems kind of flimsy as a motive, but it's yeah i mean and i i do like it's not that they're like completely like not in control of their actions but it's just like neither they nor nor we as readers nor like kind of capote as the writer really can sort of explain how all these contingencies come together to to produce this right but again i would say like you have to look at them in tandem in that moment right because like i still really think that the book is less committed to a structural production of Dick Hickok than it is to the structural production of Perry Smith. I just don't think it's nearly so like invested in saying like, I mean, it says he has a head injury, although that's always sort of like secondhand, you know, it's like that his parents say that he had a head injury and we know his parents are very like, Oh, my poor boy. Like couldn't have been, it had to be Perry Smith who was, who is the um, the the leader in this in this crime? But I just think it's a lot less that the book holds open both possibilities that it could be like a bad actor or mm-hmm. it could be a set of circumstances. Right. So like so, Hickok is the bad actor. Um, although he, you know, again, he it seems uh, uh, that he is not the one who pulled pulled the trigger. But but Smith is the Smith is the kind of chain of contingencies. Yes, I think. Well, there's also this thing too, right? Well, like Megan, I think what you're saying about um, understanding them, they're like embedded in one another in the, as we understand them in the book, it's totally true. And yeah, I think um, you can't really understand one without the other, but you also can't really understand them without looking at what's going on with their families. Mm -hmm. Because so for instance, like, the whole thing about the confession and what Perriers will say or won't say is that like, we're all going to die anyway. So maybe it would be okay if Dick's mom thought that he didn't do anything. Right. 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 And so you just don't know. Perry, I think is the one who has this dawning realization after the crime that like, maybe there's something wrong with us. Yeah. Which is, which is strange in and of itself, but it's like, um, people have these dawning realizations throughout the book, which is like the mom when, um, when it's revealed that Perry was kind of stepping in front of her son for her sake, she sort of like has this realization, like maybe there's something wrong with my son. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so that just keeps happening and happening over and over again. And like you have that realization. It's like repeatedly, like you're repeatedly, forced into it like perry is raising a squirrel in his jail cell and you're like maybe he's sort of an okay guy right and then they go to the crime scene photos and you're like oh there's something wrong with him yeah yeah Yeah. that he could and it's always it's always moving back and forth really on a tightrope with him right so it's like he he cuts his throat we know that it's like this terribly violent death but he has to put the mattress down right this is like a whole plot yeah, so he, this is a whole yeah. He like point. he gives like the the boy like a pillow to make him more comfortable before he like sh- like fully planning to to shoot him in the head. You know, like yeah, it's, it, yeah. Um, like he's not like just kind of pure sociopath, like, like lacking any kind of sympathetic capacity. He has that, but also has this capacity for this really kind of like senseless violence, and that those two things exist together in the same person is like really fucking chilling. You know, right. 
And I think for him, speaking, talking about him in terms of the contingencies, I think helps me understand him because I think for him, like, it wasn't inevitable that he would have killed the family. He probably wouldn't have gone in and done it alone. But I think because Dick was there. And so I think part of what happened was, and somebody correct me on the details here, but Mr. Clutter's throat is cut. And I think that Perry says, tells Dick to finish it off or something like you'll feel better. And then he sees that he can't do it. And then he's like, well, I can't just leave him like this. So, right. So there's like something that's really complicated going on because it's like, so if you have maimed someone, is it more moral to, it's not more moral to leave them that way. Right. But there's not really like a good, there's no like, there's no option where your hands are clean. No, no. I mean, there's never an option here where their hands are clean because it's like a folia de, or however we want to think about that, right? So it's like, it wouldn't have ever been of this magnitude if it weren't two people working together. Right. And it's also like, there's all these like fucking triangulations in it too. It's like, these two people and they depend on each other. But it's also like, okay, Perry is totally alone. And it's like, if he just had one other person to be a twosome with, yeah. then it actually worked out. Yeah. 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 Like, he's looking for this guy, Willie J, who's like a preacher. And that's why he goes to Kansas, he says. Right, yes, yeah. That's yeah. what he says. Yeah, right. Yes, Willie J is his, his kind of former cellmate or friend from the inside. But yeah, who like becomes a Christian and like tries to convert Perry. and that. So, so he got, yeah, right. So he comes to Kansas looking for this guy that does not at all lead to murder. I mean, ostensibly yeah. leads it completely the other direction. I, or at least that's what that's what Perry thinks. Um, but instead, he meets up with the Kitcock, and so it does. Yeah, like. But everybody is constantly laying in front of Perry the conditions of redemption, right? So his sister does it. His old army buddy, or merchant marines, yes, guy who's this religious Catholic says like the conditions for your redemption are right in front of you. Yeah. Willie J does it too, and but he refuses. Yeah. But I think that so so there's a difference between what the sister does and what like because because Willie J and the engineer, the Catholic mm-hmm. um, guy who's in the army with him, they are like trying to be friends with him because they want to they want to convert him. His sister is just like pissed at him. Right. Um, yeah. There th- there's this letter from her which um, is basically just like just reaming him, you know, like for eight pages. It's just like where it starts with like, she's describing the shoe sizes and heights and weights of her kids. Yeah. And she describes one, it was just like my, this is like the most memorable line in the book. She says that one of her kids has 16 teeth and a sparkling personality. That's which right. Is just like, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is like, whoa, Willie, yeah. what's happening here? Yeah. But then the reason why he likes that letter is because Willie J. Analyzes right, it for him. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. he's like, yeah, and he's like, um, you know, uh, she's kind of like being a bitch. And the weird thing is Perry's like, oh my God, like he's a genius. Uh, he read this eight-page letter where she's kind of being a bitch and he deduced that she's kind of being a bitch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what, uh, yeah, which I think, I mean, that, among other things that that I think probably just should, the, the just the like kind of thirst for some kind of like sympathetic connection, which he's like never gotten like, uh, but, but uh, that, oh, like someone else recognizes that this is, that this is kind of a shitty letter. 
Um, but I also do like, so I mean, like they, uh, one, I mean, like, um, it does seem like her specific relationship to their parents was, it was a bit different than Smith, although she still had to deal with a lot of her mom's bullshit and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, but it's like, like her way of kind of dealing with this past trauma is like created this very kind of middle class life for herself basically like i you know i was fucked up too or like i i had all the reasons that you have to be fucked up but look at me and like what the fuck are you doing you know yes he's keeping her from being conventional yes yeah she thinks yeah but she's also afraid that actually he's he's not and that that it's the family curse and that she will wind up the same way her brother who killed his wife because he was too jealous and um like his other uh perry's other sister who like fell out a window and maybe killed herself yeah right no yeah and and so the lady says like you know my other brother he had like all this willpower he finished school and he still wound up killing himself yeah killing himself and someone else i think she kills herself he comes in and takes that same weapon and then kills Mm. himself Mm -hmm. yes that's that's totally right that's absolutely right yeah, but in any case, yeah, the 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 the, fa- the the family's path is to end in some sort of like violent tragedy. That's just that's just the where the Smiths wind up. I mean, I think that it's like we know that Perry Smith. It's a. It's like he toward the end. We know that there is something super wrong with him in terms of like you can't kill a bunch of people. He knows it, right? You yeah. know, like he's aware that that's why he does this starvation thing where he's like. I'm going to kill myself before they, before the state kills me Yeah, because he knows that he's only going in one direction. Right. Yeah. That, toward yeah. the end of this book. Yeah. He, right. He, he has, yes. And, and just, and just like the capacity for any sort of like moral, uh, moral reasoning. Um, he, he has in a way that like his partner just doesn't um, flat out doesn't. I have to complain about one of the contingencies that I think is like Capote's fault and not Perry Smith's fault, which is that like, I actually don't think that he's producing a sort of version of like, that the effect is racism on Perry. I think that what the book is producing is that narrative about like the split inside the mixed race person. That, yeah, that I think that that sounds, that sounds right to me. That it's the sort of like the, maybe we can say between two worlds or whatever we want to say about that. But I think that what he's setting up there is something different than a racist effect, which I would find like a much more sort of compelling structural question than like that he's sort of what they, what they say half breed, which is like a very native specific way of describing a mixed race person. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I think. But for me, that's like very much Capote's fault. And also one of those things that I think is like for a specific audience. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I think that like, so that like that raises a kind of different question for me, but it, 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 um, it gets me, you know, thinking back to, okay, so like Capote is the, like producing, uh, all of this ultimately, um, is the big difference between how the two killers are described, you know, Perry Smith is bundle of contingencies who like has all these kind of characteristics that let us in some way kind of sympathize with them and Hikaku doesn't. Do we think that that reflects like factual reality? Is it because Smith and, and Capote were the ones that became friends? Um, 
or is this actually do we actually want to read this as like i i don't know something like a more like a more like kind of true in an ultimate sense account of like these two types i mean i think that that's actually a really important question because that's one of the ways that uh capote really uses primary sources Mm -hmm. he uses a lot of letters Mm -hmm. to talk about perry smith's background Mm mm-hmm he uses right. a letter from his father. He uses uh, the first person testimony of his friend who's the engineer. And he uses Perry's own account of his life. So he actually, and we get the letter from the sister. So we get a ton of data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? We get, I I think, just like a lot more primary sources on what we're made to think is sort of like, this bundle of contingencies. And that's weird. I had never thought about that. That's like, it's not just from his, from Perry Smith's point of view, although the book is really invested in his interiority, which is weird, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but we get a lot of like what I think we're made to think of as like corroborating facts. Yeah. 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 I think that's true. I mean, like, I think that to get any, I think it's a super important question and a question the book in some way does want you to ask, right? Like, yeah. how can you ever, how, like, how do you actually, how do you know a person? Like, what makes them knowable or not? But it is the black box always, you know, like, yes. it leaves it that way. Mm-hmm. Because I think, like, to not um, would be to, like, not be that thoughtful. I think like, it that's- would not, first of all, not meet the genre, right? Like, it wouldn't be a whodunit in the way that it is. But I also just think, and this is where another ethical, like, this is an icky thing to say, so forgive me. It wouldn't make for a very good book. Right. Right. No, that's true. But I think, like, the weird thing is that, um, like, Tristan, exactly the question that, like, you're asking and that, like, Perry can't ask. Because mm-hmm. he's sort of, like, at bottom thinks he has stuff figured out. Right. In a way that, that like, sometimes leads him to be more moral, but but a lot of times leads him to, like think that he's like psychic kind of yeah you yeah, know? yeah yeah mm-hmm. well and that he actually thinks he's a very good reader of people which is i just don't think he is no i i don't know i don't know he may be like because he's around because he's like i think he may be an okay reader of people i actually do i think that's oh. interesting I think that's super interesting. Well, I guess I, uh, the, that he's not is that he became uh, very cl- what he thought very close friends with Truman Capote, who is like clearly, <laughs> clearly only interested in your story because he's working on this bucket. But I mean, maybe that's not fair, but it is like, I, I don't know. I, but can it be both? Like, I know that that's like yeah. a fucked up thing to say. And it's like, can't they both be friends yeah. and this be an exploitative relationship? I mean, maybe that's like a really yeah. gross mischaracterization of like a power relationship and that it could also be like oh couldn't they also be no, friends but they, no, they, yeah. they can be i think that is absolutely fair and then the but the other thing too is like from the standpoint of like someone who's like on fucking death row it kind of doesn't matter like this is someone who oh, like point, yeah. is taking an interest in like your your story you know what i mean so like i could totally yeah. see how yeah. someone in that position be like yeah I, yeah he is using me but guess what i mean he's like he's like the person that I could actually like unburden this shit to, you know what I mean? So, yeah. And it's, it, the thing is like, yeah, I think that's totally right on. I think it is both. I also think like, okay, so he's got these like people who are, who are like taking a Christian interest in him and they actually like want something out of him too. Like, Oh, totally. They, they want to yeah. convert. They want to like get his soul for God, you know, yeah, like yeah. they want something out of it. So it's not yeah. like disinterested. Want- like they're, 
no no social interactions are like disinterested no totally yeah they want a soul for god they all and, and in so doing they want to like restore their cut their kind of like moral order to that that the, the, the center is redeemed that is something that has to happen like for their their worldview to uh which i guess is not you know in some ways not all that dissimilar to what Capote's readers are kind of looking for. Oh this, yeah. You know? I think Capote's readers are looking for something that helps them be psychologically sophisticated readers. Yeah. They're, they're trying to be psychologists and they're also trying, you know, that the idea that like four rich uh, white people could just be murdered like this. That's not that, that is, that is like deeply threatening to like the kind of stability of their world. So how do you, so how do you pull that threat back in? We have to explain it. And, and I think like one of the really interesting things about this book is like, it tries, it really tries to do that, but it also doesn't like ultimately just give you some very tidy pat answer for doing that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because it's like it's it's le- it's more so Perry's made up crime where he like says that he was living with this black man uh, who it all says is like he likes to read westerns and like maybe he snored when he napped like it's very sparse details on him. Yes, it's, he says that he beat him to death with a bicycle chain like that's his big lie. Yeah, and that is like way more believable, you know, to like a reader than um this prosperous family, this prosperous white family got killed mm-hmm. and like that they say the townspeople say that a shitload the the one woman who is buying her this one character is buying her husband gold teeth and that's the main thing oh yeah, yeah yeah she can't leave town because she's getting these gold teeth for her husband and the last thing she said to mr clutter was i bet you've never been afraid and she says and you know what that's the last thing i said to him and i bet that he wasn't afraid because this couldn't happen not to him right right and yeah. that's, but that's the, and I think that that is what you're talking about, Katie, with the, in terms of its like narrative construction and that like, we just need to also have that in our minds and it's like, it couldn't have happened, you know? And that's why we have to resort to these psychological explanations. Mm-hmm. Yes. There, there's another thing too, where it says like telling the, this town about this murder, it, it's like telling them there's no God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a really striking line. Which is another very, I don't know, for me, that's like, no one could write that except for Capote. That has to be a sort of insider-outsider line. Yeah. You know what it's also like? It's like, I, I don't know where this comes from, but I had this professor in college who said it. He said that there was this thing that when people were talking about medieval peasants, they would say, don't tell them that their labor is an accident. You have to tell them there's God. Don't tell them their labor is an accident. Oh. And so it's like, to me, it was very like his view of the people in this town was like, he writes them as if they are medieval peasants. Like that's like his hmm. orientation to them in this weird, in this strange way for me. Oh, it's interesting. Like, that's about. I think I find him less cynical than that. I don't think that it's necessarily like a cynical because you can have, I think you can have warmth toward people who think that the clutters need to be alive for there to be a god, and like for there to be people who think that if they don't, pla- like you know, in the medieval times, like people who think like, oh, I need to, I need to do my farm work or the sun won't come up. Hmm. It's not like it is in a way dismissive or belittling, but it's also not without like, I know it's like paternalistic, but it's not like cold. Hmm. Okay, I see yeah. what you mean. It's always hard for me because he doesn't characterize Dewey the same way, right? So it's like, it's a certain, he's he's respectful of his brain power or something. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, although, like, I don't know, like, Dewey is good because he's like, he's very Kansan, but he's Mm -hmm. also, you know, he worked for the FBI in San Francisco and his, like, wife is from New Orleans and stuff, you know, so like he, that, that, like, that, that's something that I I noted this time reading it that I hadn't in the past is that uh, he is part of this community, but he also is like, in some ways more or like Capote wants you to know that he's like more worldly than like a lot of the people that he interacts with. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, mm-hmm. he also has that, like that obs- he's an obsessive. Yes. Yeah. And he's also like a facts guy. Yeah. Which we know is like, believe it or not for all of his sort of like, you know, psychologizing and interiority and taking Perry Smith's point of view. Capote wants you to think that this is that he's a fact guy, or else he would not have so many primary sources in here. Yes, no, that yeah, right, exa- right exactly. That he, yeah, he he kind of he is role playing as Dewey a little a little bit in this. Yeah, yeah. yes, yeah, totally. And we're also aligned with Dewey in yes. a way because, like, the way you read this book is like, okay, I'm like, you you re- you have to be like a little bit hungry for what's going to happen. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, and you and so hit like Dewey's a big line that he always says is, "I I need to know the clutters better than they knew themselves." Right, mm-hmm, right. And he says like, "I I do know the clutters better better than they knew themselves," and that very much is like the position that I think Capote takes for whatever reason, whether he thinks that like that there there's not that much to know, and I think like there is this a little bit of dismissiveness that's going on that like actually you can know them because there's not that much to know, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I really see that, like, I find the scene really riveting where we learn that Dewey keeps going back into the house. Yes. Even though it's been, like, we get a lot of detail about how it's been, like, meticulously cleaned by other people in the town. And he keeps going back. Yeah. To sort of, like, yes, you know, like, muse over what has happened here. He's really doing this sort of, like, you know, embodied analysis or something. Yeah. Yes. And the right, the smoking 60 cigarettes a day and like losing like 50 pounds just because right. he like yes. is just inhabiting, like so inhabiting the kind of like, or trying to inhabit the mind of the killer and the mind of like the family. Like, yeah. But there's also, so like, yes, so like that thing where he's like smoking, he goes to the diner and everyone's like, you look like shit. You look like you're wearing <laughs> right. a fat friend suit. Yeah. Like, you look terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's this way that like he gets so into solving the case that the only place he can be is the house. Like, he oh, starts yeah. to like uh, form to yeah. the house because he's huh. like, I need to be in the house because it's the only place, because the phone lines were cut. So it's yeah. the only place I can actually think. Right. So like, he has to be there. Yeah. Um, like his needs are fulfilled by this house in like all like all kinds of ways. Yeah. No, that's totally true. And it's but you're it's again, I think that it's like that's where the narrator gets so close to these characters that that's where we feel weird about it, right? Because like Capote is right there in that room in the way that he is in Perry Smith's cell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it feels really like we feel there. And that's, those are the points of view that, you know, okay, so this is a weird thought, but like in the, in the way that Perry Smith and Dick Hickok are like conjoined to each other, there's a way that like Dewey and Perry Smith as characters are playing off each other too. That's really interesting. I didn't think about that at all. Because those are our access points as readers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Katie, I don't know if you have questions because this book is so fucking grim that it's really hard <laughs> to be funny about it. 
I know. So I do. They are just like literally like they're just actual questions. Okay. Um, cool. That's fine. Like they're they're actual factual questions. Number one is um, so Perry is addicted to aspirin. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, what was an aspirin in the sixties? It's the same. <laughs> it's just an aspirin. It's a uh, aspirin is um, it's derived it's just from aspirin. a plant. It's derived from a yeah. plant. It's the same thing as it is now. It's like what my dad takes a tiny one of for his okay. blood pressure. I take a tiny one of it too for my blood pressure, Megan. I that was just the first example that popped into my head. <laughs> it wasn't um, so the- a. And he chews them as like I would uh, not at this moment in my life, but like what I like I used to chew Valium. <laughs> oh yeah, fucking hell yeah, sure. Like, uh, no doubt, pour some almond milk on it and eat it. Yeah, it's, good. it's great, it's crunchy, bitter as hell. I have one more. Okay, so you have choice A, B, and C. Which is the wackest thing? Okay, and choice A is. Perry's story about this nurse named Cookie who like jerks him off when he's in the hospital and then he just like abandons her by leaving him a poem that he says he wrote that's like about how he's too much too much of a badass yeah no yeah yeah so that is like real fuckboy hours right that's choice a yeah Mm -hmm. choice b is the editorial called another crime where someone literally writes an editorial about how gossiping is crime number one where crime number two is an entire family got murdered right Mm -hmm. thing number three is the jones theory which is how everyone in town is like hey mr jones we all think it was supposed to be you oh right yeah Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. and mr jones mr jones is just like fuck you like whatever i don't care yeah which is the most fucked up Gossip is bad. Gossip is worse than murder. Yeah, it's the gossip is worse than murder. I, I don't know. Just because, like, I for that newspaper editorial, it's just like that whole town seems like they're all on the verge of just murdering each other, right? Like, yeah, yes. Like, I mean, it, yes. yeah. And th- that is actually like one of the more chilly things of the book, just how like quickly it descends into like paranoia and like, so. I mean, that's one of the things that totally. I actually like really love. Not. I don't love that it happens in a moral sense, but I love that sort of like tone. Yeah. That yeah. that that actually feels very sort of like oddly enough, like 18th century. Yeah. Yeah. Which, no, totally. Like yeah. witch trial shit to me. To- totally. Yes. Absolutely does. No, there is a way that it's like the that the book is trying to be like, actually, like the living are the real victims because they have to go on having neighbors. <laughs> Right. right. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. And that I, you know, I find that like again, like really 18th century, and it's sort of like people turning on each other. I think that that's fascinating. Yeah. Right. And and, and it is like a very yeah. just kind of like Hobbesian idea of like everyone is just like there. It's just it's just like a very thin barrier between us all just like murdering each other. Right. Totally. I disagree with you. Your choice, though, both of you. Yeah. My choice is because I think that the editorial is in a way it's fucked up it's like the sentiment is the most fucked up thing because it's it's wild yeah but the jones theory to me is more fucked up because they're like terror in a way they're like very lightly terror passive aggressively terrorizing this guy yeah i mean that's true yeah 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 and it's also in that same genre right of of what we were what we're actually mad at which is that the townspeople are like turning on each other 
Yeah. Here's the other thing that was crazy about this to me. So Truman Capote, like, very clearly uh, wants to insinuate that Nancy's friend is trying to fuck Bobby. Totally. That's insane. It's insanely fucked up to me. Yeah. That he's insinuating that. Well, we don't. That's a great example of, like, we don't actually have any evidence of that. No, No. I'm not saying I'm not saying at all that she was uh, i'm saying that like he speci- that's specifically written so you think that mm-hmm. right. and i think that's very fucked up no i'm saying the yeah. exact same thing right so it's like yeah. when he's actually good at this he's mm-hmm. saying like here's all this evidence here's all these primary sources and yeah. that's just like pure titillating speculation yeah yes he's he's implying she's a hunter biden right oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yep, yep, yep. Uh, and so at least we get that, like, oh, isn't it nice that he married somebody else in that very last scene? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is even yeah. actually like more fucking yeah. fucked up to me. Yeah, that that last yeah. scene because he's like, he's like, what is her name? Sue. Yeah. Yes. So he's like, okay, so he's like, yeah, Bobby went and married somebody else, Ka- Ka- and yeah. she is like the avatar of this dead person, Colleen Whitehurst. Yeah, she's really beautiful and very nice too. Good for Bobby. Entities are doing at it. But how about you? You must have a lot of booze. Yeah. Yeah, that's weird. That's a weird fucking way to end the book, isn't it? Yeah. Like, uh, and that's one of the famous scenes that Dewey is angry with Capote at because he's like, it absolutely didn't happen. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, it's fucked up. So this has been Better Red Than Dead. You can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywo. You can find me on Twitter at Tusslersaurus. You can find the show on Twitter at BetterRedPod, R-E-A-D, and on Instagram at BetterRedPod. And email us at BetterRedPodcast at gmail.com, but only if your sister writes it on your behalf and it's extremely mean about you. (laughs) Uh, Our theme song is Love Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate, review, and subscribe. And in coming weeks, we'll be talking about Little Women, Gulliver's Travels, and The Awakening, among other great things. So thanks. Glitter.